There we go. Wow. Welcome to CSIS. My name is Kimberly Flowers and I'm the director of the Global Food Security Project here at CSIS. We are looking at ways to strengthen and sustain the U.S. government's leadership role in global food security and increasing awareness of issues of how we increase agricultural production and how those relate back to U.S. strategic interests. Today we have a very exciting dialogue on the contribution of biosciences and the book that you can see in the back we grab on your way out or many of you already have as well as the panel of experts and the research that they conducted would not have been possible without the, um, the funding of the John Templeton Foundation. And the John Templeton Foundation is, is a philanthropic catalyst to discover answers to the biggest questions in life. Um, I love their description on their website of who they are. And I also was really drawn to their motto, which is how little we know, how eager to learn, which is a great motto also for CSIS and for many of us in this room. To start us off and to frame our discussion, we have Christopher Stowski, who's the Vice President for Strategic Program Initiatives from the John Templeton Foundation. Christopher? Thank you, Kimberly. Good afternoon, and thank you to CSIS and the Global Food Security Project for inviting the John Templeton Foundation here today to highlight the launch of a new publication entitled Analyses, Africa's Future Can Biosciences Contribute? This book is the third in a series of publications emerging from Biosciences for Farming in Africa, B4FA, an independent not-for-profit initiative supported by the foundation and others that has no commercial interests and works to provide balanced, scientifically-based information on best practice, innovation, and entrepreneurship to enable African farmers to unlock the continent's agricultural potential, including training for journalists within African countries on the role of biosciences in agriculture. The first two publications in this series, Insights and Viewpoints, contain short essays authored by leading figures in Africa, Europe, and the US to examine the implementation of biosciences for farming in Africa. Analyses, which continues the model of the short essay format to encourage wide readership amongst policymakers and opinion leaders contains essays written by leading researchers who have been supported by the foundation through a funding competition centered around the big question, can GM crops help to feed the world? The book, edited by Patrick Mitten and David Bennett, summarizes the key findings and recommendations from 13 of the projects that were funded through this grant competition, which largely focus on sub-Saharan Africa, but also offer insight from research conducted in Asia and Latin America. In the aggregate, the chapters discuss staple crops grown by smallholder farmers, including cassava, cooking banana, maize, rice, and sorghum, and cover all aspects of the supply chain, including plant genetics, regulatory status, seed supply, and agronomy extension services, as well as perceptions and attitudes toward GM crops from the perspective of both the grower and the greater society. The topic selected and the articulation of this big question was carefully considered by the Foundation as part of our broader charter-based mandate to fund highly focused strategic initiatives on genetics. Although primary scientific research in GM crops is well-funded by government, industry, and the philanthropic sector, investigation of the optimal practices and policies for implementing GM technology for broad public benefit, especially for smallholder farmers, has received much less attention and support. In consultation with Sir Brian Heap and David Bennett at the University of Cambridge, this topic was identified as an area where the foundation could make a strategic intervention by supporting new research to bring greater focus to the potential benefits of these new technologies 
to advance the lives of smallholder farmers and their communities. The Foundation's purpose is to make progress on this topic with a spirit of science-based objectivity and humility, aiming to cut through the controversies and polarizing nature of the public discourse on this topic in order to support a more civil and informed public conversation. To provide greater specificity to the big question, researchers were asked to address the following kinds of questions in their projects. What are the scientifically established nutritional, social, and environmental consequences of GM crops, particularly for small landholders? In which regions of the world would their use be most appropriate and beneficial? In which settings might they have deleterious effects? Can the use of GM crops have an economic impact across different levels of income in less developed countries? What role might they play in improved land use, for example, less chemical fertilizer, or more efficient production, for example, with possible reductions in energy expenditures, the enhancement of domestic and international marketing services and or improved credit facilities? What are the barriers to the acceptance and use of GM crops? What policies have enabled and or hindered their use? What is the science-based evidence about the role that the following issues play in facilitating, facilitating or inhibiting the adoption of GM crops? International trade, biosafety and or biosecurity, regulatory and or intellectual property frameworks. While each of the essays and research findings and analyses addressing these questions stands on its own, this book would not have been possible without Patrick Mitten and the B4FA team. Through their efforts, they have facilitated greater connectivity amongst the grant awardees in an attempt to bring greater visibility to each researcher's work and to increase the overall impact of the Foundation's initiative on this topic. In a phrase, the Foundation is grateful that they have helped to make, quote, the whole greater than some of the parts. I would also like to give a special thank you to Joanne and Nessa Tuttle for helping to make this event possible. This is the second event that CSIS has hosted, highlighting research funded by the Foundation. In November 2014, CSIS hosted a one-day conference entitled, From the Ground Up, Translational Research Pathways to Improve Lives of Smallholder Farmers. To help bring the results of new field research supported through this initiative to the Washington discussion in order to inform and impact U.S. government and other efforts in global agricultural development. I'm gratified that Joanna and the CSIS community has welcomed back our grantees to continue this conversation. Today, you will have the opportunity to hear from three of our grantees, including Carl Prey from Rutgers University, Jose Falk Zepeda from the International Food Policy Research Institute, and Joanna Nesseth Tuttle from CSIS. You will be treated to a conversation that highlights both the difficulties and possibilities for how GM crops and biosciences might play a constructive role in reducing poverty and hunger across different areas of the world. Quoting from the forward to analyses, I hope that this conversation and the book will, quote, contribute positively to the debate on modern advances in plant genetics and thereby play a small part in alleviating the food insecurity and poverty of many hundreds of millions of people around the world. Thank you. Thank you so much.
research, we looked at how smallholder farmers are looking at biotechnology. And I think we came away feeling like it's all about the science, but it has nothing to do with the science um, across the board. Because there are a couple really important elements of the scientific research that are vital to understanding the situation and thinking about, um, especially how we looked at how US policy might engage going forward. And USAID, through IFPRI uh, and through the missions, has been a very strong supporter uh, in terms of building capacity, building regulatory structures for countries who really want to pursue this pathway. So they have been a vital um, catalyst for engaging in all of these issues. And what we found was that one of the important challenges that uh, anti-GM activists will take is that you know, scientific research can't be owned by big companies. It, it's, you know, you can't have biosciences be owned by private entities. In all of these countries, the science was coming out of the national research organizations. It was publicly owned. Every part of the scientific research um, process was going to be owned by the public, was going to be released by the public. Um, but inherent in that, we felt, was a challenge around commercialization. So if you've got a public, if you've got publicly owned, um, varieties, then what, how do you catalyze commercial interest in really creating a supply push and in, in, in promoting demand among farmers to actually buy this stuff and use it? And we felt that that, that um, challenge had two sides uh, in terms of actually seeing a potential uptake of, of the technology going forward. A second piece was that smallholder farmers, very low levels of adoption of even sort of basic improved seeds. But the science wasn't there in, all of, in, in a lot of the different um, types of crops that were under research. So the banana varieties weren't quite right. Because this is so different from the US, where my, on the farm where I grew up, we grow you know, 500 acres of, uh, of, of GM corn and soybeans. Well, we don't eat any of it. It's, it's largely animal feed. You know, we're not eating this. And if you've got smallholder farmers who produce on a tarp about the size of this stage, lay out all of their corn or their maize, and that's their entire crop. Everything they eat, they sell, they use for school, um, school fees and everything, medication for an entire year. That is a very different story. So um, how does it taste? How does it cook? Are we comfortable with it? All of those questions come directly down to, that, to the research. And what we found in talking to, re to the scientists and researchers, they're really trying to find the right, um, the right approach to creating varieties that would really be desirable to not just the people who were growing them. Because if you're growing them, you want weed control, you want better yield, you want a lot of different things. But if you're eating them, you want something entirely different. Um, one of the places that we visited was not growing GM. They, they were not growing biotech varieties yet, but they were growing biofortified. Um, crops, and they had undertaken a massive, quite expensive effort around behavioral change. And, you know, to me, th they were trying to convince a village of people who had be been eating sort of white sweet potatoes for generations to suddenly switch to orange sweet potatoes. Mm -hmm. And they were able to sell the idea that orange sweet potatoes are good for you because they have vitamin A, 
that helps prevent blindness because that was something that everybody had kind of learned about and understood. But I liken that to trying to get my father, who is an old stubborn Norwegian farmer, to change the way he eats when he still complains after almost 50 years that my mother's cooking doesn't taste like his mother's. So I think the challenge of convincing people to change their dietary habits, to change what they're eating, it is a whole of village, it's a whole of community approach that's not about the science. The science is sort of a piece of it, but how you change people's thinking is overwhelmingly important in terms of seeing something um, have an uptake, especially if there's a, you know, a special nutritional benefit to a particular variety. And I think a third piece was really around um, ag extension, which is always, it always seems to lie at the base of so many of the problems around ag development. Who has a responsibility for teaching farmers um, about new varieties? Is it the public system? Is it a private system? In a lot of cases, when you have such large numbers of farmers, a public system can't possibly reach them all. So how do, how, what, you know, there, there needs to be so much innovation around ag extension systems so that farmers learn you know, basic um, better, better soil and land management practices. They learn more about um, different varieties and that there are varieties available because I think a final element that we looked at and heard a lot about was that the capacity, um, the production capacity to actually have enough seeds ready at the right time and distribute them to farmers was, was still limited almost every place we looked at. So you can't, create a, you can't create a demand and then not have the supply in order to meet the demand because that's going to be very destructive to your overall um, approach to trying to increase uptake of some of these technologies. So that, that's a, just sort of a real broad overview of some of the big points that we found. We did produce three reports. They're all on the CSIS website. One was an overview of the whole project with specific um, uh, pieces on each country and what we saw in each country. We did a piece on the trade and regulatory debate in each country in quite a de uh, level of detail. Judy Chambers did that out of if IFPRI, or Judy didn't do that one. Um, she, she did the, the landscape of the regulatory process and then John Komen and David Walfula did a piece looking at trade and, and trying to understand and assess whether growing GM crops would somehow disrupt Africa's trade relations with Europe. And they, they basically said, no, that actually the, the numbers really don't play out on that. So all three of those reports are available. And then, of course, in analyses is sort of the synthesis of the overall project. So thanks for, for listening. Thanks, Joanna. So next we have Dr. Carl Prey. And Dr. Prey started, I think, his agricultural career as a Peace Corps volunteer in India in 1969. He is now a distinguished professor of agricultural food and resource economics at Rutgers. He's also currently the president of the International Consortium for Applied Bioeconomy Research. Um, and the focus of his research is around international agricultural science and technology policy. Um, for this particular project, he focused on India and China as well as Kenya. Dr. Prey. Thanks very much. Um, and thanks to Templeton Foundation for, for funding this project, which turned out to be a very, very interesting project, I think, for all of us. Uh, the, uh, the main focus of uh, my research, the main research problem in some sense, was, was looking at these three countries that 
uh, were mentioned, India, China, and, and Kenya. And in each of those, there, was, there had been uh, regulatory decisions about the safety of GM foods or about the safety of, of consumption of GM foods. Uh, but policymakers had overridden the, the decisions of the uh, regulators. And so, so in, in all of these countries now, um, uh, well, sorry. In India and China, you've got uh, uh, extensive use of GM cotton, but no use of, of GM foods, essentially. Um, and in, in Kenya, also, there's, there's no GM cotton yet and no GM foods. And so we want to, to sort of focus on the, the policymakers and try to understand what the forces were that were influencing the policymakers in these decisions. And so we. Um, what we did is we, our, our, our sort of working hypothesis was that in all of these countries, uh, with any kind of new food, you have uh, cons cons uh, consumers are concerned about, about the possible food safety impacts. There are concerns about environmental impacts. And in these countries, many of these concerns have been sort of amplified by uh, civil society organizations that are concerned about, about big business, about GM foods, all this, this uh, sort of thing. So that, that there's this sort of, of um, uh, group that is, that is or groups that are working against biotechnology. Uh, but in some countries, um, for instance, uh, Brazil, you have these same groups that are operating against uh, biotechnology, but in, in the case of Brazil, you had very strong farmer organizations and strong organizations uh, in the agricultural input industry that were pushing very hard for this technology and were able to convince policymakers to go ahead with the commercialization of, U of GM crops. On the other hand, you have Europe, where you had, again, similar forces against GM crops. And in that case, you had the, some of the economic interest groups, such as the chemical industry and perhaps some farmers groups, that were uh, working with the anti-GM groups to, to uh, block GM technology. So our, our thought was, OK, let's look at the economic interest groups in China, India, and, and Kenya and see what kind of role they actually play and see how influential they are. So we uh, did some of the quantitative analysis that uh, Joanna referred to, looking, doing simulations of who gains benefits from these technologies, who, uh, which groups would uh, lose economic uh, profits from these things. And, and uh, in that analysis, uh, we've, we found that really in all of these countries, farmers and consumers are the major aggregate beneficiaries of these things, but sometimes they can't easily see what kind of benefits they get because they're relatively small for each individual. Um, in, in, we, we also looked at, at whether the biotech companies, you know, the Monsantos, et cetera, would be making major gains from these. And, and what we found interestingly was that really it was only in, in India under the current setup that, that Monsanto and uh, Pioneer and some of these others would be able to make uh, economic gains. They're not going to be making much in the way of, of uh, profits in, in Africa. They're actually, uh, in, in Kenya, they're actually giving away the technology. And in China, the government is restricting the role. So it's only going to be uh, local companies that, that benefit from it. So we, we, you know, we, we got a sort of a picture of who's benefiting and who's losing. The losers would be the pesticide companies that can't pr produce and sell as much pesticide, and the, uh, some groups that 
produce from farmer groups that produce for uh, exports to Europe, for instance. Um, and this didn't play out in Africa, but in India and China, uh, India in particular, where you had uh, exporters that export basmati rice and other fine rices and were concerned about this. Okay, so we then looked at each of the individual countries to try to, to get some sense of what was going on. And in, in India, as I mentioned, they, they're, they're kind of stalemated, um, you know, big controversies over the, the GM eggplant and, and uh, whether that should be commercialized or not. And, and um, when we looked at the economic interest groups, you found that, that they do play a big role in Indian politics. But in this case, you've got sort of a stalemate because you've got important economic interest groups such as farmers organizations in some parts of the country that are very pro-biotech. And you've got other groups that are growing the basmati rice, for instance, uh, that are very anti-biotech. And likewise, in, within the seed industry and other industries, you have this same kind of, of thing where you have, you've got interest groups that are pushing in both directions. And this uh, linked to act, you know, very active uh, anti-biotech organizations has, has led to this, this stalemate, which, which still remains in place pretty much. Um, in, in China, you have a very different sort of setup. Again, the, the e in, in this case, economic interest groups don't play a very important role just because of the structure of the government and, and uh, the importance that, that the Chinese government places on certain groups. And, and in this case, you really have a um, uh, GM policy that is, is uh, dominated by the Chinese government's desire to produce a uh, competitive biotech industry that can, can uh, be active globally uh, and can actually challenge Monsanto and can, can perhaps compete with them for, uh, for uh, global markets on biotechnology. And this is the thing that seems to be driving much of, of what goes on in, in China. And the fact that just recently, uh, in the last few years, the Chinese companies and Chinese government scientists have been able to uh, uh, show the government that we, they really do have technologies that aren't patented by Monsanto, that are, uh, you know, things that they can push globally as well as internally, uh, that the Chinese government has started to take them seriously and, and uh, consider pushing this technology. So perhaps in, in a few years you'll get uh, some action on uh, GM corn. It'll probably be the first thing that comes out there. Um, and then uh, finally, uh, going to Kenya and, and Africa, which is sort of the main focus of today's discussion. Um, in, in Kenya, you have uh, uh, a similar situation to China in one sense, in that the, um, the economic uh, interest groups have very little influence on what's going on there. The economic interest groups are not well organized, they're not very powerful internally, at least the ones that are associated with the benefits from, from biotechnology or the losses for that matter. And so you don't get farmers really uh, pushing this technology very hard. Uh, they don't know what the, the technology is. They haven't been able to see it any place, uh, unlike the other countries who have been able, where the farmers have been able to at least see uh, BT cotton or something like that. Um, and so uh, in, in, in Kenya, we didn't get the sense through interviews and, and also reading 
some of Johanna's work, that, that the farmer groups and seed industry and groups like that were really playing a role in the policy making. And so what you, what you really have is sort of this battle of elites in, in Nairobi or wherever, where you've got, got groups uh, such as, as Pelham, which is a, uh, an environmental group that is, is uh, one of the leaders um, in throughout Africa in opposing GM technology, uh, and it's a it's an organization that's that's funded uh, in their annual report. They, they say, well, we we were only able to raise two percent of our money from Kenya. We really have to do better than that. So ninety eight percent of their money comes from Sweden and Germany and and uh, Netherlands from from uh, government organizations and NGOs, and they're they're battling on one side on the biotech uh, front, and the other side is, is uh, the USAID that is supporting organizations like ISA, which some of you have probably come across, which is, uh, is uh, an international organization that is, that is leading the, um, the, uh, the sort of the struggle to, uh, to push uh, GM technology there. And so you've got these, these these, uh, this kind of proxy Europe versus uh, U.S. battle that's, that's going on. Um, now, things, things uh, may change in the near future, um, and it's, it's, it's not exactly clear, but now you have on the ground in field trials uh, some insect-resistant corn, GM insect-resistant corn, which actually uh, is something that, you know, if you, if you look at the non-GM and the GM next to each other, farmers and seed companies can really see the difference, um, which you didn't have before. Uh, you have uh, hybrids in Kenya being extensively grown, and more than that, you have non-GM um, uh, drought-resistant hybrids that are starting to go out through the uh, regulatory system to, uh, to farmers, to seed companies, and starting to, to you know, generate some interest in, the, in these, these groups. Um, and you also have uh, the, the, um, the Cereal Millers Association and the Seed Association uh, that are getting interested in this and, and starting to push this technology. So you do have some groups that are starting to, to play a bigger role. On top of that, you have a whole new structure of government, which has kind of gummed up the works. There's a new constitution, a much more decentralized government now, which should give farmers uh, more, uh, more say in what happens on, on these things. And so, so you may see some, some changes coming along with, with these different factors in, in place. And, and uh, uh, the, the, the one thing, though, that's looming over all of this, and if you look at, at things globally, uh, as, as Johanna mentioned, uh, there's no place in the world where you really, except South Africa, where you really have a major GM food crop. And so uh, you've got um, the, the crop that's most likely to be uh, commercialized is, well, cotton perhaps in Kenya. That's the one that's furthest along in the regulatory process, but the next one that's furthest along is GM corn. And, and corn is the basic food grain of, of these countries, uh, of, of um, uh, Kenya. And so there's a, there's a real question about you know, whether, whether uh, this uh, is, is gonna be commercialized or not. Um, so I'll leave it at that. Next. Great, thank you, Dr. Prey. 
Next, we have Dr. Jose Falix Zepeda. He comes from us, comes to us from IFPRI, the International Food Policy Research Institute, where he's a, a research fellow, and he focuses on the economics and impact assessments of biotechnology, biosafety, and emerging technologies. And his research was focused in on Honduras and maize and how examining the gains that might be from adopting and using GM crops in Honduras. Thank you so much. And let me thank the John Templeton Foundation for the support provided for our research. And then, of course, CSIS and the Gates Foundation for hosting and supporting this event. Uh, let me first start, and I'm going to make like five, five statements about uh, our research and some of the lessons we have learned in terms of the Honduras case study, but also in terms of other research that we have done around the world. And the first statement that we have is, uh, that I have is that we now have a, several broad literature reviews that have been conducted that actually show some of the positive impacts of agriculture biotechnology and genetically modified crops around the world. We're talking about impacts on yields, impacts on income, impacts on pesticide use, and other aspects of including labor savings. As expected, these results vary substantially from one farmer to the other, from between households, within regions, between countries, and so on. But in essence, we've examined a lot of these positive impacts. And the issue now becomes a little bit of more moving away from the economic aspects of this technology and going into different that broader social aspects of, of it, including health, nutrition, gender, biodiversity impacts. Uh, we know then that economically these technologies work in most cases, but then the, the big question becomes is how are we going to frame this in terms of the broader social context and how is this going to work in terms of addressing broader social concerns. Um, the second statement I wanted to make is that the policies and political will are critical in fostering agricultural innovation. The case of Honduras actually illustrates this point vividly. There was a very systematic effort from the government in terms of releasing policies that will ensure food security, coming up and developing a very pragmatic approach to biosafety regulations, having a science-based regulatory system, and having a streamlined regulatory approach in a sense, becomes a, it's a country that has very little capacity to actually do research and development, and yet the enabling environment allowed this possibility of tapping onto existing technologies out there. Now, that brings us back to our, our research, and in that sense, um, it is one example where we have this technological triumph coexisting, in a sense, with limitations and failures in terms of institutional issues. By institutional issues, I'm talking about access to credit, access to fertilizer, access to pesticide, access to herbicide, access to seed itself. It becomes quite a bit of a, a constraint in terms of adoption and diffusion of these technologies. So the technology worked, and we measured and we went into painful detail in terms of the quantitative assessments, in terms of looking at impacts on yields, impacts on pesticides, impacts on gross income, when comparing the GM maize with its conventional counterpart. And in some cases, we were able even to compare to some more conventional varieties existing in the field. Uh, but then the big question becomes, why is that having a successful technology, you don't see much more and broader adoption and diffusion? As of last year, I can estimate that GM maize actually represents 10% of the total area of 
base planted in the country. And then the question becomes, once again, why if it's so successful, why hasn't it been diffused much more? And part of the question becomes, well, there are lots of issues in terms of institutional and social issues. All the way, like I mentioned before, access to credit, access to fertilizer, but then also in terms of the type of varieties. The varieties that are available at this point are for yellow maize, which is basically used by the feed industry. Now, if we're talking about white maize, which is the, what is consumed by people, then we don't have the right varieties in there. So variety choice, and that is tied up, of course, to consumption patterns and consumption issues. So that's an important part of this discussion. Um, so in that sense, uh, we have identified in that sense the gen gender as becoming an important aspect because that actually has a little bit of influence in terms of consumption and other institutional issues. Um, in a sense, it uh, becomes a little bit of a complication in, because kind of measuring those social aspects become quite difficult, particularly when you have such a diversity of, of households and different regions within the country becomes a little bit problematic. But this is something that we'll need addressing, particularly if we're going to be actually at looking at different technologies that are more public in nature. When we start looking at other crops, for example, in the case of Africa, when we start looking at sweet potato, starting looking at sorghum and millet and a couple of other things that are much more of a consumption, which in the Honduras case study became an issue because, of course, we're, we're not talking about subsistence farmers. We're talking about smallholder farmers, which is a little bit step up, a little bit slightly more commercial than subsistence farmers. These are not farmers that are consuming the maize in that sense. So uh, to summarize, can GM crops and other science, bioscience products contribute to society's welfare? I guess this is the end question. I think it's, the answer could be yes, but it's a modified yes because we have to start looking at these limitations and societal issues that are actually constraining adoption and diffusion, but also we have to track back a little bit and have a little bit of feedback in terms of what type of technologies are actually being developed and what, what is the process that that technology is moving from the laboratory to the confined field trial to the uh, eventually to the hands of farmers in that sense. So uh, particularly when we're looking at these measurements or these new limitations, I guess not measurements, I'm translating from Spanish right now in my mind. Um, <laughs> so particularly when you're looking at the, some of these limitations, climate change mitigation, adaptation, sustainable intensification, much less reliance on fossil fuels for agriculture, which is an issue that I don't think has been discussed enough. So then biosciences will take a much bigger role in terms of supporting agricultural production and productivity. So I think this, in that sense, biosciences will be a major contributor to this new world of agriculture. So with this, I conclude. Thank you very much. Thank you, yeah. Jose. You know, when you talk about how you look at the positive impact of, of GM crops on, the, on yields and incomes and labor, um, did you find any negative impacts? Was there anything that you found that, that maybe this isn't a good idea? Yeah. Uh, yes. I, and as in most of the analysis that we do, we tend we looked at both the positive mm -hmm. and the negative. And in fact, when I talk about positive impacts, they're in a sense net, because we okay. take into consideration the positive and the negatives. One of the aspects that is important, particularly when you're talking about uh, technologies where you actually pay a technology premium to use the technology, one of the things that is important is the financial risk that is involved in here. Mm. And trying to mind, because in a sense, farmers are asked to pay for an additional amount of money up front in the sense before they even know that they're going to have, there's going to be a pest infestation. So mm -hmm. for example, if a farmer pays for the technology upfront and then there's no pest 
that particular year, then in a sense you might say, well, this is a financial risk because of course you're paying for something that you're not going to be using. Uh -huh. um, but I guess the best analogy is life insurance, right? We pay a premium for life insurance and yet we don't die. Well, of course, yeah, we, I don't think we lost that much money. We lost the premium, right? So that's more or less the financial decision. Okay. But yes, that's one of the aspects of it. And then the other part of the story, I think, is, is also the issue of uh, biotechnology, in a sense, is very specific. So in that particular case, we're talking about resistance to a lepidopterum. If you have some other crops, which is what one of the things that was happening in Honduras, there was a, there's a fungal disease, it's called black asphalt, okay. that is actually attacking the, that is not effective. So in that sense, you start losing, uh, gaining a battle, but losing other battles. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that's another risk you might, you have the wrong technology at mm -hmm. that particular point in time. And one of the common themes in, in all of your remarks is talking about the institutional, the social, and the political constraints. Um, and the fear and actually the, the active movements, as you talked about, the elite battles happening in Nairobi, you know, against this effort. So a question I'm just going to open to all of you is, um, are all those fears unfounded? You know, why, why are those elements there and, and what do you say to those factions of, of um, why GM crops can be um, a successful and sustainable solution to food security issues? You want to start? Well, I, um, I, I don't think I'll take on the entire battle, but I, I want to talk about why one country in particular chose to go down this path, because I think it's very important. I think it's fundamentally important that every country has to decide for itself what it's going to do, and that it be a national discussion and not an international discussion, that we can help and facilitate and support through our donor agencies. But countries have to figure out what they need. So in Uganda, and it is on CSIS's website, we have um, a presentation by one of the chief scientists in Uganda talking about the path Uganda took to basically eliminate every possibility except GM, uh, GM research for dealing with, rem remember that the traits, the traits are not just for bigger, better, more. It's, it's a lot of the traits are about pesticides, that reduce pesticide use, and, and they, 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 they save your crop because your crop is then not um, susceptible to just devastating kinds of diseases. In Uganda, it was um, black. It was it was two kinds of banana wilt uh, and banana diseases. And and they pursued a series of options of scientific options to research to mitigate to to combat the, the pests. This is the staple food crop for the country. And without having a way to save the crop, they were not going to have. They were not able to really ensure. Food security, so they pursued uh, a biotech, a GM option, and the GM option it's still it's still undergoing refinement because they haven't found quite the right qualities to to make the bananas the way people want to cook and eat them. But I think it's really important to to ground the conversation in a national level. Food security needs assessment, oh. and that um, and that's where I think the U.S. can probably be mo most supportive, as well as once that assessment comes through, and you see these are the three or four things we've identified as needs. Yeah. Then what is what do we have that we can provide through um, donor activities, through partnerships with companies that can help um, jumpstart the research and adoption process? Because the U.S. has technologies that that are just going to take way too long to develop and can really. Get, give um, national research organizations two to three years head start? I, I think that, that in my own mind, I, I think the, you know, there's, there's uncertainties with any, any new technology. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and uh, agricultural biotechnology has been, been subject to more scrutiny than any new, tech, new food technology has ever uh, been uh, subjected to. And, and the evidence so far, and you know, endorsed by the National Academies of the United States and China and France and all of these places, has been that, that the technologies that we have available now do not provide, uh, do, do not you know, lead to any uh, greater uh, hazard or risk than, than the, the, the corn that we had before it was uh, genetically changed. Um, and so there's, there's that on the one side, and then, then what, what's the alternative? Well, the, the alternative has been in, in uh, China, where we've done these studies, of using, you know, massive amounts of, of pesticides. Uh, and, and with the pesticides, we know that those do have uh, hazards, and uh, if they're used incorrectly, they're a high risk of, of, of human, uh, you know, impacts. And so in the studies we did in China, we looked at, at um, you know, the, the farmers to, that uh, used the GM and the ones that didn't use the GM, essentially, and, and the farmers that, that did not use the GM used, you know, uh, what, five times more pesticide. They got exposed to it because they don't wear any protective material. They have a backpack sprayer that they spray and, you know, and they get the stuff all over themselves. And so, you know, so the farmers reported that, you know, that, you know, I have headaches the whole cotton season because I have to spray every third day, you know. So that, so that you're, you know, there are, there are hazards, risks, perhaps, but, but uh, it's, it has to be some kind of balancing process, I think. And, and the thing that, that I saw in the, in the Chinese case, for sure, was this, this dramatic reduction in, in uh, pesticide use. So uh, I, I, I don't know, that's where I come out on this, on this particular thing. Well, let's talk a little bit about the voice of the smallholder farmer. You know, what I found fascinating looking at this is all the research projects, even just, just in sub-Saharan Africa alone, talk to over 1,600 farmers, and I'm sure in each of your countries too, you talk to you know, dozens upon dozens of, of farmers. And you mentioned as well, Carl, that, that their voice isn't always heard. And so questions that I have um, to each of you, and we'll start with you, Jose, is you know, what are the farmers saying, um, and, and how can their voice be better heard in this dialogue so that policymakers are listening to them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I think it's, well, and I think in a sense this question is connected to one of your previous questions mm -hmm. about uh, some of these issues of perceptions and ideas and how, mm -hmm. they, how society shapes its own ideas and perceptions about the technology. Uh, I think it's extremely important that these questions are made and that the questions that farmers have in terms of the technology and in terms of the implications of the technology are better channeled than what has happened in the past. And I think this has been, in a sense, a little bit of a breakdown in between science and technology and the public, in a sense, and, and, and farmers in particular. So I think that in that sense, it is extremely important. Now, having talked with farmers in Honduras and elsewhere, I think that one of the, their concerns is, is about how are we going to be accessing technology in mm -hmm. now and in the future. And that always comes up in these uh, discussions. And part of the issue that was actually is channeling that, that, what is the mechanism to actually channel that? And in a lot of countries in Africa and Latin America, there has been a breakdown of 
the extension services. We used to be a little bit of the channeler of some of these ideas. Again, it was in a, in a sense an intermediary between farmers and academia and research in some sense. So I think that's one aspect that we perhaps we had to rethink a lot of these issues, particularly some of these um, structural adjustment programs that were actually brought upon that actually uh, got rid of extension services in some sense. Uh, so we have to rethink about this policy about extension services. Right. I think that's extremely important. Thanks. Joanna, what do you think? Would you talk to farmers and how we elevate that voice? Well, I mean, I think it's, it's hard to just elevate a farmer's voice without, you have to have it coming from both ends. And I think that, I, I can't say enough about the role of extension in connecting research with use. And, the, and I, I, you know, in, in having um, smallholder farmers come to the U.S. and go to Michigan and study, you know, look, go to USDA and study how we do things, they always say like, oh my gosh, you have people like doing research, but then they call farmers and they talk to them and say like, how did it work in your field? And that, that direct connection is remarkably effective, but it's real, I think it's, it's not possible to conceive of that right now in a lot of places, but having more direct conversation, more of a really understanding what do people want. And I think it's, as we had, we had a very small sample set, but as we had conversations with farmers, it was kind of the same thing you'd hear from anyone. I want better yields, I want less work, and I'd really like a tractor. And you know what the other thing we heard was just totally unrelated. What better dairy cattle? <laughs> what better, what better, and Dr. Falsapeta is a livestock person as well as everything else, but um, you know, we never talk enough about livestock, but how that fits in and how you have crops that actually will, will I mean, scrawny little cows, mm -hmm. terrible veterinary services, how you have crops that actually better nourish your livestock mm -hmm. is also an important part of the, um, the chain. Right. Do you want to add anything to that? Uh, well, <clears throat> I mean, you know, certainly one of the differences across these countries that, that uh, I looked at was, was, you know, the structure of the, the government, not so much extension services, but, but uh, you know, it, it is the case that, that in India farmers uh, do have more say, uh, partially because it's a, you know, a working democracy. Mm. Uh, and there are these farmers organizations, whereas in, in China, the farmers are represented by the Communist Party. You know, that's, that's what you say in Beijing. And, and, and so there aren't any, you know, there's no commodity organization like, a, you know, a, a corn producers association that really can, can you know, highlight the issues that, that, that farmers have and can really put political pressure. Uh, and uh, likewise, in, in in Kenya, you don't, you know, there are these organizations, the, what's it, the Commercial Farmers Association, or I can't remember exactly what the title of it was, but it was that. It was, a, you know, it was the big commercial maize farmers that, mm -hmm. that had some influence. And really, the only people that had, the only farmers that had serious influence were the coffee growers and the tea growers and the sugarcane to a certain extent, where, where they are big exporters, and so this was an important source of revenue to the government, you know, and jobs and stuff like that. So, uh, the, again, the, the political structure and the structure of farmers' uh, organizations is, a, is an important uh, factor, particularly compared to Brazil, where, you know, the governors are of the states are, are big farmers, the, you know, there's this, the, the big farmer coalition within the, the parliament that, that is, is very powerful and, okay. and uh, plays a different role. So, so, you know, 
you can only go so far in, in hoping for farmers to, to be active. And I, and I think, I mean, AID has some programs that are trying to help farmers get organized around, uh, you know, around particularly commodities and stuff like that. But, um, you know, don't want I, to. I would echo that. I think, you know, farmer organizations seem like a logical step. But how do you aggregate those voices if you if you don't because they can be so easily pulled in one direction or another based mm -hmm. on different funding or outside influences? Mm -hmm. So finding ways for people to really identify what they want and need, but yeah. also balance that with well, what what's actually out there. If you if you know mm -hmm. something's out there, mm -hmm. you may be more likely to say I want that than coming up with it on your own. And and um, farmers organizations can aggregate it, but I think they're just that's why I think extension is so important to have unbiased or at least relatively unbiased, government-supported mm -hmm. information. Because what mm -hmm. we did find is, like, the government may not be perfect, it may not be the best, but there is credibility that the government mm. brings, and government sources of information carry a lot of weight. So having that be more active, robust, and um, well-educated is, is uh -huh. important. As we kind of look towards the future, and then it's hard to predict, but. How many years do you think it's going to be until we have a Templeton Foundation book that says how biosciences are contributing? And, and as we think about that, you know, are there particular countries, and, and let's kind of zero in on Africa a little bit on this, but are there particular countries, and we know in some places, South Africa and others, you know, there's already progress, but who's, who's kind of the up-and-coming leaders in this, and who, who's the next country that you think can can really take the next step and and how many years do you think that this conversation is going to be completely different than what it has been the last few? I know that's a big question, but I'm gonna ask anyway. Dr. Prey, do you want to start? Well I don't think I don't think it's gonna I mean it's gonna be a long time before things are completely different. Mm -hmm. um, uh, because it's you know it is a it's an you know it looks dramatic now but it's very it's an evolutionary sort of, of processes. <clears throat> that's taking place and and um, and you know and so you 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 know and and this you know biotechnology you know moves with kind of fits and starts that depend on political issues and political structures and things like that I mean and I, great traits blockbuster, blockbuster traits well great that's things, yeah that's true the technology itself yeah. uh, determines things I mean BT cotton was was you know for cotton was like you know the the miracle rices were for rice in the mm. Green Revolution, okay. and it's it's an unusual technology that it is so superior to the the conventional technologies. These the things that are coming along now are not the blockbusters mm -hmm. that that is. I mean, you know, drought tolerance is is going to be a good thing, but but it's not uh, it's it's not a blockbuster. You can barely see it if you're looking in the field unless there's mm. been a drought. You know, mm -hmm. um, so uh, uh, I don't uh, you know I don't see big huge changes but the kind of changes that you do see are are you know in 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 places where there are are uh, important commercial farmers so things like Sudan um, where where you know uh, technology yeah. is 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 spreading and and it's in it's in you know kind of commercial big commercial uh, production they're bringing Brazilian farmers over to uh, to uh, manage these big government farms and things like that. Uh, and I'm sure that these guys are bringing GM things with them, whether they're commercial, you know, whether they're approved or not. Uh, so you're going to get some of that kind of thing. And then, and then there are some countries like Ghana, I would guess. Ghana. I, I'm not 
so expert on Africa, but, but Ghana and Nigeria are both countries where yeah. there seems to be some, uh, some uh, movement of you know, groups that are trying to, to uh, move these technologies along. And, and, and in, in the West Africa, you can look at Burkina Faso and see that, uh, that the insect-resistant cotton has been pretty effective. You know? So that, that makes for an important example. Mm -hmm. um, it, it may be that yeah. no, nothing anybody actually actively does is what really changes things because you can mm. see like a combination of sort of incremental um, Brazilian seeds moving across borders because right. it's not like the borders are super well controlled. Brazilian seeds moving across borders combined with big actors like China suddenly having a commercial push to sell some products yeah. internationally. It may be being a little bit um, not as concerned about the regulatory system as a U.S. company would be. Mm -hmm. And all, you can see like some of these incremental things moving across borders, plus a big new actor actually having a pretty significant mm -hmm. impact on the scene. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, and uh, in addition to the countries that uh, Carl has mentioned, I think that it's also important to take a look at uh, Ethiopia. It's going mm -hmm. to be another interesting one, particularly now that Sudan has adopted cotton. Now it becomes a little bit of a competitive mm -hmm. pressure to try to sure. revitalize the cotton industry in, in Ethiopia. Uh, and certainly there are other countries, well, Kenya, Uganda, it's already been mentioned. And in particularly the case of Uganda, it, that's where one of the places where there is a blockbuster if it, manage, if it mm -hmm. manages to, to work, which is kind of looking at the black cigatoka and the bacteria wilt resistant bananas. These are extremely important because these are staple crops, yeah. huge benefits from adoption. We have a couple of studies uh, examining that in terms of, of looking at the impact of that technology. And at the same time, looking at, uh, we have another Templeton project, by the way, where we looked at the investments in R&D that go into this. Uh, and we looked at Kenya, Uganda, Nigeria, and South Africa. And they're massive, they're very big investments in terms of looking at agricultural biotechnology in general. Uh, not as much as GM, except for the case of South Africa, but then uh, there's quite a bit of investments in there. So I see that this is going to probably change. In terms of time frame, uh, it is going to be a slow process. I'm looking yeah. 10 years into the future, at least. I'm going to yeah. call you in 10 years. Yeah, you can call me. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking maybe in five, we yeah. might look back and see change. Yeah. Let's open it up to questions from the audience. Um, we have folks with microphones around the room. Uh, raise your hand if you have a question. Scott, right up here to the front. Hello there. Um, I wanted to, to dive a little bit more into this data versus perception piece and see if you wanted to talk about that a little bit more. The thing that sort of comes to mind immediately are two stories of the last two weeks. One of them is the WHO coming out and saying that all of a sudden you consume bacon, processed meats, you're going to get more cancer. The reality is you go from five and a half percent on average, you know, by itself to six and a half percent. So you move up one percentage point by consuming more processed meats. Uh, another example from this morning, uh, in China they have this new C919 plane. Uh, they've been promoting it. A number of journalists and others came out and said, well, that's great that we have this new plane, but our leaders aren't flying on these planes, they're flying on Boeing jumbo jets. Um, so one of the things that I think it sort of speaks to is even though there are these great data stories that we have on why it's actually safe, you could actually do better risk analysis in this space, we don't do it. Um, there's still going to be this perception that it's unsafe. We get this a lot with this sort of organics versus GMOs. I was wondering if you could comment a little bit more on that or something like that. Um, well, uh, uh, 
certainly um, the well, I don't know how, how much depth to go in on this. The, in, in China, uh, you, you have a, a number of things working. I mean, you know, one, uh, the, the approval for GM technology and consumer groups has, has you know, taken a nosedive in uh, the last five years, something like that. And, and part of it has been, been because the, of all the food safety problems that they've been having internally, you know. Uh, and and uh, then the the uh, the antibiotech groups have been able to kind of link this up with the the findings that um, uh, you know if you go into a supermarket in China you you and you do a, a real careful test of the rice you're going to find some some rice probably that's that's GM rice you know and so so every you know every uh, couple months why there's a story on on. GM rice, and then there's another story on food safety problems. Now, and, and they're kind of next to each other. You know, they're not necessarily the, you know, there isn't any evidence that the GM rice is a, a problem, but, but it's, it's there. And so this perception has been, has, has uh, grown, and it's been, it's been um, uh, amplified, I'd say, by, by a couple of different sources. One was during the, the transition to the, to the new government in, in 2013, uh, the, some of the, the more conservative Maoist groups got onto this GM thing, and their website was, and the newspapers were, were really trashing uh, biotechnology, and, and as, a, as a way of kind of, uh, you know, uh, going after the Xi Jinping factions and stuff like that. So these things can get tangled up with, uh, with uh, politics and, and as well as, as the role of Greenpeace and some of these, these, these groups. So, um, I think I'm rambling on. I'm not sure whether I'm actually getting <laughs> directly at your your issue or, or not. No, yeah, yeah. You certainly are, but it sort of speaks to yeah. something I know Johanna noticed in her study is that what the leaders were saying in some of these countries was very different than what the farmers were interested in, or which was where the data oh, yeah. was. Yeah. Right, and right. so that sort of, it, it sort of speaks to needing to do more surveys of political elites on best practices and what they're sort of seeing in their yeah. countries. Mm. And let me just kind of bring back a little bit the results from another study that we did in Uganda looking at the banana uh, situation. It was interesting because we polled consumers and producers both in urban and rural areas, which became quite a bit of interest, the interesting result in the sense that there was a small group that regardless of how much data and information you throw at them, they're not going to change their mind, both positive and negative. But then you have a big segment of the whole population that really depends on where you are. If you are an urban consumer, you tend to be a little bit negative, I guess, in that sense, because you're exposed more to some of these kind of negative influences. Whereas if you're in rural areas, you tend to see a lot of the issues that are involved in terms of coming, in terms of food security and losing your crop. So you have much more at stake in there. So you, people in urban areas in, in Uganda tend to be more negative. People in rural areas in Uganda tend to be more positive for a technology that may help resolve their issue. And it goes back to the suitability of the technology itself. If it works, yeah, of course, bring it on. And that's uh, more or less the situation. So I think in that sense, we have to come back. But there was always this kind of, like you mentioned, there was this sense of a little bit of, well, we better think about it. And that's where we kind of, the recognition goes back to this issue of, of there, there's a 
onus on the developers and the scientists to actually come back and say, well, this is the technology, this is how it works, and in very simple terms or whatever communication skills you're going to be using, but at least transmit that message and try to kind of ally those fears from people and, and make it, in a sense, work for that. Mm -hmm. Matt. Could I just add one, one thing sure. that I meant to add before I went off on that other tangent? Um, the, the, um, the, the other thing that, that, the, that anti-biotech groups have, have done is, is you know, attack the, um, the credibility of the regulators. Um, and, and, you know, through lawsuits in India is, is the typical way to do this. And, and, you know, regulators, you know, as they're developing the regulatory system are always, almost always doing something wrong, right? I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're not following, they, they've imported these regulations from Europe or the U.S. And, and, you know, they're kind of working them out. And so then it's easy to, to find something that's wrong with them. And so there is, there's a, a real issue about the credibility of the, of the regulators particularly when they screwed up with, with uh, melamine in the milk in, in China, you know, or, or uh, you know, or, or, you know, same kind of problems in India and Kenya. Mm -hmm. I would say, I think one of the things that, um, one of the least compelling statements is, but the data show, uh, yeah. fill in the blank. And so the data show that the, the GM crops don't bear any risks, they show that they don't affect your health, and that's completely uncompelling to most people. Because the fact is you, you just can't overestimate the importance of people's personal perceptions on what they put in their mouths and what they feed their families every day. So we have to find somewhere in between, like we have to have hard data about what actually happens, but there has to be a much more dynamic conversation that's fact-based but, but sensitive to people's actual personal concerns because there are a lot of personal concerns because there actually is a lot of inf misinformation. Um, and there are actually really good reasons why people choose all, to eat all different kinds of things. So that, again, I go to the fact that you've got to root any conversation in a national dialogue, a national consensus about what are we doing with our food supply and why does it matter. Um, but, and, and I think in a lot of the countries that were featured in this project, um, food security and job security are very, very high on the list of public concerns, like if you look at Afrobarometer or whatever. Um, but, but nothing's going to move, at least no American or European varieties are going to move without a regulatory system. And boy, I tell you, regulating biotech is like over down here on the list of most government's priorities. So, so it's really difficult, like this could, if, if food security is a priority, then how do you put getting a strong regulatory system, um, how do you put that in a place on a par with that priority? And in a lot of places, there's a pretty big gap between mm -hmm. those two. Great. Phil? donor countries in, in terms of dealing with this issue in a rational way. This has been a long-term issue and, uh, you know, I remember back in 2003, many of the same discussion points you have today were taken then and there doesn't seem to be much progress. Department of Agriculture, USDA, was pushing aggressively adoption of GMO, uh, but USAID was ambivalent. Uh, FAO tried to come up with an international agreement that was voluntary and kind of wishy-washy. And I was just wondering, you know, from the in-country perspective, where are we on FAO and the donors? Do they have an influence on this? And before we answer, I should have asked you to say your name and where you're from. Scott actually runs our Seven Revolutions Looking for Future 
Oh, gosh, now I can't even say it. <laughs> Doing future predictions here at CSIS. And Phil, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, as well? I'm Phil Thomas. With uh, I run a food security project at George Mason University across the river. Great, thank you. Well, I, I mean, I can speak to USAID. Maybe others can speak to FAO. But yeah. um, so I, w I w actually, before this project, spoke to a mix, a group of um, sort of scientists from around Africa, and they put forward the question. They said, "Feed the Future" is just a U.S. effort to push GM technology in Monsanto's. <laughs> you know, Monsanto's uh, water. I said that actually in all my conversations in the <laughs> development lead up to implementation of Feed the Future, I've never once heard that and I'm pretty sure it's not. But with that said, USAID has been uh, probably the most incredibly ef effective and, and I think quite careful um, agency around helping to support countries that come to them and say, we want to ex we want to explore biotechnology, we want to look at how it can impact our food security situation. And they've worked a lot through IFPRI as a very credible organization. Um, but they've, they've really worked to support scientists, to support regulators, to support training. Um, and they've done it fairly quietly. John McMurdy at AID was a very important for us with our project in helping us to understand the lay of the land and who was active in each country. So I, I have felt that they've been They've been strong and they've been very demand-driven in terms of what countries want. Um, well, uh, I don't know. Should I, I'll take on FAO a little yeah. bit. And <coughs> I mean, FAO is, has been and continues to be very ambivalent about about biotechnology, and they and and um, uh, so they they really have not uh, really contributed much in either direction, I wouldn't say, uh, on, on uh, this issue. And I mean, you know, in some ways are they, I don't know, I mean, they're, they're more European-based, uh, I mean, they're European-based, and, and uh, a lot of the, the people, the experts there are European and, and, you know, bring along some baggage there. Um, the, the, the World Bank is, is, is interesting because they, you know, they attempted in the time frame you're talking about, 2000 or 2003 or whatever it was, you know, put together a biotechnology policy which then was, was uh, shot down by uh, the environmental section of the, of the bank. And so, so they, didn't, they, they decided not to have any policy per se, um, but uh, in, in essence to uh, continue to support biotechnology through agricultural research projects which could have a biotechnology component to it if the, if the country wanted to it and if, if it seemed to make sense. So, so their, their perspective was uh, that it didn't make sense for us as an organization to really be pushing biotechnology per se, but you know, uh, if, if, the, you know, if it's appropriate and makes sense in terms of the science, we'll support that. Um, what others? CGIAR? Again, they've been very ambivalent about about uh, biotechnology until recently, and I mean that may be <laughs> their their current in, you know maybe m more enthusiastic perspective on it uh, may be related to the fact that they're getting quite a bit of money from the Gates Foundation. I don't <laughs> I don't know. I mean you know the 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 one international in in a sense organization that that has played a an important role has been Gates Foundation. Um, and uh, they've supported it both through uh, supporting research in the, at the national level and at the international level and in these public-private partnerships like the Water Efficient Maze for Africa, um, and, uh, but also in terms of, of supporting some of the, the uh, 
research to see what the numbers are, and some of the research to, uh, uh, you know, some uh, policy uh, advocacy sort of stuff. Um, I don't know who else can I leave out. Anybody else? Yeah. No, uh, and I think the other part of the story are some of the uh, European donors and a little bit some of the Asian donors that have actually supported some of the environmental NGOs oh, that right have then. tended to focus a little bit on issues related to GM, but from a negative perspective in some sense. So in that sense, that has become a little bit, uh, it's, that's where a lot of the sources of this, uh, of some of these environmental NGOs have mm -hmm. come from, uh, European donors, kind of, uh, government and private at, at the same mm -hmm. time. Yeah. Maybe, maybe just one uh, final thing, one, one group that, that this reminded me of is, is UNEP, UN yeah. Environmental uh, Agency, and, and, and then that leads to the whole Cartagena protocol and all that. That, that has been an important, and I'd say negative, um, uh, impact on this, this debate. Um, UNEP got a lot of money to help uh, countries set up uh, their regulatory process in the early days, and 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 took you know pretty much wholesale the the um, uh, the precautionary principle and embedded that in many of these program in many of these countries and uh, you know strengthened the environmental agencies of these these places and uh, and so. There's nothing wrong with strengthening the environmental agencies, but in, in this case, um, they embedded a lot of the precautionary principles and, and uh, so have contributed to the stalemate, I'd say. Yeah, I think one of the great ironies about the whole debate is that the environmental impact is probably, there's probably a greater environmental and health impact on using GM technology because of the reduced pesticide use and reduced oh. personal <laughs> exposure, and yet the environmental question is where we, we get hung up a lot. So I, I think that having, revisiting that conversation about what are individuals being exposed to, what is getting into water systems when you're using pesticide at that rate, you know, those, those conversations maybe need to bubble back up to the surface. Mm -hmm. Question in the back. Don't forget to state your name and where you're from. Uh, Mike from DC. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, quick question on the, the uh, pesticide part. Is there any way to decouple like Monsanto from this whole GM thing? Because Monsanto kind of started out with pesticides, Agent Orange and stuff like that. And isn't that probably a big reason why people don't trust GM because Monsanto is also the biggest GM pusher? Can we decouple it and feed some people? <laughs> um. Well, I think, I mean, that, that, that part of my yeah. earlier comments. Um, really are focused on that question because when we showed up at various offices of various people and organizations they all thought we were from Monsanto. We're, we're Americans, we're here from Monsanto. Um, I, that is why I think it's so important to look at where the scientific research sits in every country. It's, it's part of the national research organization. It's part of the government. It's like the equivalent of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. It is owned by the people. It is a public good and from there it goes, and I think that's a fundamental difference in the U.S. That you know, a lot of the actual commercialization and production and research is done by companies. So, so looking at the fact that you, the people, own this research, it belongs to you. You decide where it goes. You decide what it does. And having that public conversation, Monsanto has nothing to do with it. And then they've donated some um, germplasm in some cases. But I think I think going back to the basics on that conversation is really important because you're right. It really gets tangled up. 
And I, I think that, that it, it's interesting to see the, the contrast between the three, three big countries, China, India, and, uh, and Brazil. And <clears throat> in China, they've decoupled it because they've, they've kept the, the, bio, the, the international biotech companies out. I mean, they, they, they got in, they snuck in a little bit in, with the BT cotton. Uh, originally, they were able to hook up with some of the provincial governors and get in through that way. But, but in China, they've kept the, the, uh, the companies out because they're trying to promote their and protect their local biotech industry, which they hope will be able to compete with Monsanto in some time. Now, now that, that puts the burden on the farmers because the farmers don't get access to this good technology, uh, but it helps the Chinese companies and they're, they're willing to make that trade-off. Um, in, in Brazil, they, they made exactly the opposite decision. They decided that the, the important thing was to give farmers the best technology that's available. And that, that they would take it from, from Monsanto or Syngenta or from Embrapa, the local research organization, or from Argentina, wherever they could get it. Uh, and that, that, the, you know, that the way that they would try to ensure that they were not exploited by Monsanto was to make sure that there was competition and make sure that all of the big companies were there and were not colluding with each other. And, and so they decided to take the exact, exact opposite sort of tact. And in this case, the, you know, the farmers were the, the big winners so far, it seems. Um, and, and Monsanto's making a lot of money, there's no doubt about it, but, but so, are the, the, um, you know, so are the farmers. And India's somewhere in between. You know, they, they, they kept them out for a long time so that the, so that the Indian seed companies could, could develop, but then, then at some point when they decided to open up the economy, why well, they've allowed the companies in. And so, so now you get a situation where with cotton, for instance, the BT gene comes from Monsanto, but all of the plant varieties are from, from uh, Indian companies because it's Indian companies that grow hybrid cotton or produce hybrid cotton. So it's, a, it's a, uh, a mixed story. You can politically decouple these things if you want, you know. Um, Although the, the skill that the large companies have in marketing and yeah. pushing out and, and producing enough to meet demand, um, if you don't have that, it's really hard to see this stuff get taken up. So in some ways, you have to decouple it. In other ways, decoupling it could undermine the goal of, of trying to get farmers to choose what they want. Yeah, and I think that's uh, what the, one of the lessons, in a sense, learned in the case of Brazil, actually, that uh, is, is this idea that Embrapa, for example, would actually concentrate on some of these crops and or segments of the population, the farmer population, that were not addressed by the private companies. Mm. And they actually, it's they're very explicit that we are in the business of selling stuff. We're not in the business of giving it away. And that's an important message, even though, and in fact, if you look at one of the first GM crops, a food crop that is actually being released commercially by the public sector is actually the case of Brazil with their barrel resistant beans, their black beans that are actually being used right now at this moment. They've just been recently released. So in that, and, and Joanna's point I think is also extremely important because from the standpoint and talk about the CGIR itself, whether or not a public sector institution will have the capacity to take this kind of package to farmers, that becomes a big question. And in the case of the CGIAR, for example, 
it probably does not have that capacity. In, mm -hmm. in, in some countries, it may have some inroads in there. But, but this is a very big question, whether or not there is capacity in the public sector to move the technology and actually not only move it, but also at the same time I do all of the potential issues that are involved because now we're talking about biosafety regulations that have to be met after release. So there's a lot of other issues involved in there. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, there's a reason why our project, we, we titled it Pathways to Productivity because we felt that no matter what kind of technology you use, GM technology, hybrid, there have to be these pathways from, from research to farmer to field to consumer and building and strengthening those pathways in the regulatory system and extension system, it really needs to happen no matter what you decide to use. So, so you can never go wrong with strengthening those systems regardless of the type of technology that you want to choose. I want to give space for one last question if there's any other comments or questions from the audience. Sure, right here. My name is Neil Hoffman. I'm with the USDA. We have a lot of regulation for biotech crops in the United States. Just wondering what impact that has on the regulatory systems elsewhere. So you may know that the regulatory systems are being looked at and potentially revised. We at the USDA are in the process of revising our regulations. You use the language, um, some, I think it was Honduras has streamlined regulation. What do you think would happen if the United States streamlined their own regulations? Would that have any impact on the regulatory systems or the, the adoption of GMs in these other countries? Good question. Yeah, um, I think that's it's an extremely important question. And uh, let me separate it into two different uh, parts. Of One is the influence of the regulatory system of the US, and I would say the European Union in terms of impact, of how they influence. I think that the influence has been, uh, the US has influenced some countries, for example, Honduras, Argentina, a little bit Brazil, in the terms of kind of more focus on a science-based approach to regulation in that sense. If you go to the European Union, it tends to be also science-based, but also the political aspect of it, it becomes attached because it tends to incorporate non-scientific type of aspects into the decision making, which is kind of a little bit different than the US. Uh, that has had, of course, a lot of influence in terms of, if we talk about Africa and a little bit of <coughs> Asia and the Middle East, that has had a little bit of influence. The second part of the, of the question, of your question is whether or not streamlining will work. And in, in that sense, it will. Uh, and I, th I don't think that there's, if we look at the differences in terms of the technical aspect of regulation between the US and the European Union, they're really not that different. The steps to actually measure environmental risk assessment or do the food feed safety assessment, the steps and the procedures and the approach are not that different. The question becomes whether or not the other aspects of the, the process itself uh, in the European Union, of course, it goes through all of this political aspect of uh, the Council of Ministers and the whole after EFSA is done, then it becomes a little bit of a political ballgame in that sense. That is different, and I don't think that we want to go there. At least if you are a country that wants a technology or desires a technology, you don't really want to go there in that sense. So I try to stick and to more of the science-based approaches than anything else. Yeah. If you want to add. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think us changing our system, um, you know, to streamline it will have that great an impact on, on developing countries. I mean, in, in a sense, the, the Brazilians and the Argentinians are, are kind of ahead of us in streamlining. 
uh, you know, and, and the and, and pushing stuff through the regulatory system. So, so that um, in a in a way, they've got other models around, you know, uh, to to look at um, the um, and and whether the you know the the changes in the U.S. Potential changes in the U.S. system will will be important or, or not? I don't know. I suspect that the you know if there's a big you know if there's uh, depending on how much controversy these these create the controversy and the you know and whatever comes up on the the web will that will be influential. <laughs> uh, that may have more influence than the than the actual changes in the regulatory process itself. So I mean people are looking at this and it you know and it certainly could have a negative impact. Mm -hmm. Before we wrap up, I want to give our panelists 30 seconds, so really brief, but to think through your, your key message, your key takeaway. <coughs> We've talked about a whole spectrum of things, and this is an incredibly complex issue. Um, but as you look forward to your own work and future work, you know, what, is, what is one message or one thing um, that, that you want to make sure that the audience hears today? Let's start with you. Yeah, I think that phrase coined by my esteemed colleague, Marlon Gauss from the University of Pretoria, kind of pretty much sums it all. Uh, we're talking about, in a sense, technological triumphs by the institutional failures or limitations, I guess, in that sense. So I think that uh, developers and scientists and the scientific community in general, and the public sector in particular, is well advised to take those institutional issues into consideration yeah. when actually even thinking about what technologies we need to think about. That's, in the end, what is going to be a little bit of talk about the pathways to success. That's going to be one of the main aspects of this conversation. It's not the technology. It's not the science. It's really the politics and the, the, uh, the policy aspects of the whole yeah. discussion. Thank you. Dr. Prey. Hmm. I don't really have one good <laughs> <laughs> It's hard to narrow it down, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I mean, the, 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 the thing that I fear out of this debate is that, is that uh, you know, that science is getting trashed. You know, and and that's that's sort of one of my my big concerns. You know that that uh, you know that that in in Africa uh, you've got organizations uh, that are now saying, well, you know, look at how terrible biotechnology is. The private sector is terrible. You know, because it's bringing us all this bad stuff, and and uh, that means also that you know that hybrids and fertilizers and maybe I don't know not machinery so much but but you know these these other technologies that were part of the green revolution and and in a way are a lot more important for Africa than than a few GMOs I think um, that that that's getting uh, uh, kind of trashed in the process you know and so I don't don't know that I don't know exactly how to how to tackle that particular issue but but that is one of my concerns about this sure. whole area I don't know how to summarize it either. Um, I think that from a policy perspective, the U.S. government, AID, and others can, can, should continue to quietly support scientific research, regulatory structures, and extension, you know, pulling in our land grants and our USDA to support extension efforts. But at the same time, watch the potential game changers um, coming from China or Brazil in terms of moving in, being less concerned about regulations and being, you know, more agile in terms of moving products and getting them out to people and getting them adopted. Mm -hmm. Great. Let's give a big round of applause for our experts.